think. Oh, you can help. You can hear me now. Excellent. Uh, my name is Glenn Bowles, and uh, if you've been here uh, for a while, you've seen me around in various ways. I want to wish you all a happy new year. We're glad that you are here this morning. I'm glad you made it across the ice and those kind of things to be here with us this morning. Um, I am going to take a moment and do one thing, and that is uh, mention the fact that uh, I have a number of visitors here from my family, and I'm very thankful for that. I have my sister Shirley from Ontario, uh, who is here, my son Peter and his wife Jen, and their children that you saw before, Glenn and Isla, and just walking in now. That happened to her before in the past. Uh, my daughter, Jen, and her husband, uh, Sean, and their kids. Um, I'm finding uh, pistachio nuts as I'm uh, looking at this pulpit here. Very strange. Anyway, um, and their children, um, Kaylin and Rowan. Also, uh, Sean's parents are here, Lloyd and uh, Jeanette Davies. We're so glad that they've come to be with us this morning. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn, if you have a pew Bible in front of you, to page 827. If you have a Bible that is your own, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, pew Bible, page 827. Let's stand as I read to you this passage of Scripture. At the end, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and I would love you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would come and work in our hearts as we look at your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that there would be the beginning of an enlightening of the eyes of our hearts so we can see exactly uh, in a better and better fashion what you are saying in your word, what you are showing us in your word, and what it means to us as we live day by day by your word in the work that you've given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Guide us, may the words of my mouth, meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, a number of years ago, I was blessed to be uh, 
pastoring a church where there was a man who had a PhD in inorganic chemistry. Inorganic chemistry. It was my desire to get to know the people of the church and the interest that they had in various things. I thought I could check out almost anything. Boy, I was brash back then. And figure out the person's interest enough to be able to converse with that person and have them share their loves and their interests with me. So one day I got to visit this man's house. On the mantle there was, along with other books, he wasn't just showing off this one book, don't worry, was his PhD thesis in inorganic chemistry. And I thought, great, I can look at, open this up and read a little bit and find out what his job is and his interests are, and then I can uh, maybe chat with him some more about what's going on in his life. So after asking him permission to take a look at the thesis, I took it down off the mantle and I opened it up. And I started to try to read this. I know it was written in English. I know that. But as I started to read, I could barely understand the prepositions and the conjunctions, let alone any of the uh, very important words, the verbs and the nouns and the adjectives. Oh, forget it. While I had no idea of what it was talking about, it not a little bit. No context, no vocabulary, no nothing. I was like a little child trying to read a volume of the heaviest English literature. It was not going to happen. I felt childlike and I felt like understanding this friend would be impossible. I could try my best, but it would not have helped. It was closed to me. At that point, I was totally confused. Now, in the epistle that we have turned to this morning, the great theological truths of Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 are laid out before us. In chapter 1, we read of every spiritual blessing being in Christ Jesus. There is an election before the foundation of the world, redemption through Christ's blood, forgiveness of sins, having the mysteries of God's will being made known to us. We are to receive an inheritance and the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 goes on to speak about being made alive in Christ, being raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Later on, it speaks of the uniting of Jews and Gentiles into one body by the breaking down of the barriers in Christ. And on and on it goes, spelling out amazing and glorious concepts that wash over us. And even if you're like me, who spent a lot of time thinking about these things, all of the concepts of Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 just wash over you and they overwhelm you. It's too much. It's too much. All of these things are lavished on us so that we can be those who by our lives and witness testify to the surpassing glory and grace of Jesus Christ. But it's too much. You don't understand. These are vital concepts. Important themes to be latched onto, but can we latch onto them? Can we really see and comprehend these things and the things that have been shared, as was mentioned again this morning by Pastor West, to do with what Isaiah 9 says? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, 
Can the things that are so important to our Christian lives be understood by us and integrated into our lives? Can we see the splendor and understand what is vital for us by ourselves? I think if we're being honest, we'd have to say, to a greater or lesser extent, no. No. As we begin 2017, the words of Hudson Taylor should be ringing in our ears as we look at what is coming up for us. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Now, if you didn't know, Hudson Taylor was the first missionary of the China Inland Mission. And so what he did was he left off the coastal cities and moved inland where there hadn't been a gospel witness to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 1800s, and the Lord used him mightily. But I think as we look at the Word and think about our lives as we come into 2017, we feel more like I did after I attempted to read Craig's document. I don't understand a lot of these words. How can I expect great things from God when I have little or no understanding of what he is saying? Now, what I've read to you this morning was Paul's uh, prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And it gives us hope and a prayer for ourselves and for each other in the new year that we can use for ourselves and others to call on God to help us to understand what his precious word is saying, what he is saying to us <clears throat> as we go on to live and serve as those who are in Christ in the year 2017. Now, if you have closed your Bibles, please turn back to page 827 or Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. I want you to listen as I point out some verses as we begin to look at this passage. Uh, I want to read to you verses 15 to 17, first of all. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Verse 15 in this passage, Paul has heard many good things about Ephesus. He's not been there himself. Timothy, his young protege, has been ministering there instead and telling him a lot of good news. They have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they love all the saints, both those who are there and across the known world. This is what Paul says typifies those who are in Christ, those who are somehow mystically, um, miraculously joined to Jesus Christ, united in him. This is how those who are in Christ behave. They've had the work of redemption and substitution that Romans chapter 6 speaks of. And so Paul hears of their faith and their love for the brethren, and Paul is very, very pleased. goes on in verse 16, and he says, I've not 
stopped giving thanks for you, but I have prayed that you would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation, an increasing power from the Holy Spirit to know how to use and to apply in a greater and greater way the knowledge of God. If you're going to serve and to testify to the work of God in Christ, you have to get to know him better. Even if right now the knowledge seems unattainable, I want to pray for you that the Lord will start making it more and more possible for you to take into your lives what God is saying about himself, who he is, how you relate to him, so that you can serve him more fully. This word, this knowledge that was talked about here, is spoken of by a Greek word that means intimate relationship or full knowledge, even a marital connection. And now, the beginning of where I want to go comes in verse number 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Here's what he wants them to have, a gift from the Lord the eyes of your heart being enlightened. Now, that's a very interesting concept. It doesn't fit with anything we normally think about. How many folks think about having eyes in their heart? Well, I think if we talk to Kaylin, my granddaughter, about it, she might say something about that and have that idea along with her unicorns. But I, everybody else, well, forget it. The heart to us is the place where the emotions come from or where the heart beats and pumps the blood around us. Love, if we think about things in a Western fashion, is where is in the heart. Love comes from the heart. Emotions come from the heart. All of that gushy, romantic stuff comes from the heart. But for a Greek, emotion was centered in the liver and the kidneys, and even the bowels. Bowels of mercy, King James says in Philippians. Ugh, bowels. For a Greek, this is where emotions were. It's more logical. When you get nervous, how do you feel? You have butterflies, right? You feel weak at the knees, right? Your stomach churns, right? At the bowels, at the abdomen. For a, but for a person of the Greek culture, the heart was not just where the blood was pumped. It had nothing to do with emotions and love. It was the source of the will, purpose, comprehension, and knowledge. All that signified who a person was, was focused, it was believed in the heart. This was the place that the Spirit of God worked when it turned a person from an enemy of God to a friend of God. The new birth or new creation changed what Ezekiel called a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Ezekiel chapters 11 and 36 talk about this. So when Paul prays that the eyes of your hearts be enlightened, he is praying for the gift of God that opens up and turns on the light even more brightly into the innermost recesses of that person. So that what once was dark and incomprehensible would now become more and more illuminated. This is nothing less than a pouring out of an increased measure of the Spirit of God upon our lives, that promised paraclete. We're not talking here about a new filling, 
but a strengthening and an increase of that filling. Remember in the Gospels that Jesus would speak of his suffering and death and the disciples could not understand a word that Jesus was talking about or why he was talking this way. When it came to his mission, they were often confused or dead wrong about what Jesus was trying to do. Disenlightening is precisely what needed to happen to the apostles after their journey on the road to Emmaus with Jesus. After Jesus rose from the dead. Now Luke 24, 44 and following says this. He said to them, This is what I told you when I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds, or one could say their hearts, so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise again from the dead and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Did you hear what he said there, one part of the passage? Then he opened their minds. And I said that can be related to their hearts. So they could understand Scripture. Before, they had no idea what he was talking about. They even told him, no, may it never be, Lord. A special gift needs to be given on an increasing basis so the things of Scripture become open and illuminated to us. This is exactly what Paul is praying for the Ephesians. Minds and hearts are now able to understand because the Spirit of God is coming and illuminating, enlightening, opening the eyes. There's going to be three things I want to share with you out of this passage that make up the gift of enlightened eyes. First of all, there's going to be a growing knowledge of the hope to which we are called, or knowing the hope. Secondly, there's going to be a growing knowledge of the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. We're going to know the value of His inheritance in us. And that will make some people wonder what's going on as I say that. The third thing is growing knowledge of the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, or knowing the power of God. These are the three things I want to look at this morning. Knowing our hope, knowing the value of his inheritance in us, and knowing the power of God. Well, the first one, then, is um, the idea of knowing your hope, growing knowledge of the hope to which we are called. Verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Now, this hope is not some wish. This is not some desire to win the Lotto 649. This is not something about getting a boat for your next summer vacation. I wish I can. I hope I can. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about blowing out the candles on your birthday cake. I'm getting too many candles now, by the way. Not talking about that and wishing on them. It's not that either. This is far more serious than that. 
Robert W. Smith, the former pastor of Peninsula Bible Church in Florida, the church where Ray Stedman was pastor, said this, This hope is concerned with what we are to be in the Lord. We are called out to belong to God. This hope has to do with the internal change in us that takes us from being children of wrath against whom God would one day unroll his fierce wrath against sin to the people who are alive in Christ. And you see that in Ephesians chapter 2. All of the pining of our future rests, as Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 indicates, on the substance of things hoped for. God has made for us, because of Jesus Christ's work, real and precious promises that although they are based in an unseen world that cannot be touched or heard or smelled or seen, are as real and as tangible as those pews upon which you sit. Or the jackets that you have worn to come in from the snow. Except they're not physically discern. Now here's the hope expressed in a song, a little Christian ditty that we used to sing. I have a home beyond the river. I have a mansion bright and fair. I have a home beyond the river. I will dwell with Jesus there. It's a growing knowledge of the hope that we have in Christ that is nothing less than a developing realization that right now I am a child of the King who bought me with His precious blood at Calvary and I have a home to which I will certainly go. I was bought by the King through the spending of His Son's life. I am going to that place that He has for me. And I must, therefore, wisdom dictates that I live every moment of every day of my life here on earth with a greater and greater focus on that promise that God has for me. The question that both Francis Schaeffer and Chuck Colson had in their book still rings true today. What are, uh, how shall we then live? We will live knowing that this world is not our final destination. This world is not what we long for in the end. This world, as I feel like I am learning more and more every year, is only a fleeting way station to an eternity with the Lord. By the way, I thought that Christmas 2015 was only three weeks ago. That's the way it's feeling. And if you were 75, you'd say it felt like a week and a half ago. Only a fleeting way station to eternity with the Lord if you're in Him. Aligned with this realization that, as 1 John 3, 2 says, one day when we see Christ, we shall be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is. So now, my thinking and my behavior, my dreams and my priorities need to be brought into greater and greater alignment with His. Chapter 2 of 1 John, the call goes out for us, to give the world its subordinate place, its beneath place, as compared to this hope. All of this, Robert Smith says, is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. This is where life is to be fulfilled in you, the confident expectation of entering into and enjoying and portraying and fulfilling the glory of the character of the Lord. I want to repeat that for you. 
This is where life is to be fulfilled in you. The confident expectation of entering into and enjoying and portraying and fulfilling the glory of the character of our Lord. This is the first part of the gift that Paul wants the Lord to give to these Ephesians and by extension to us. This gift of enlightened eyes. Knowing your hope. Now, I want you to understand that this first point is only for a certain people. I want to remind you here that this hope that Paul is talking about that he wants to see increasing in the lives of the Ephesians is only true. It's only true for those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. It is only as a person comes to see they are, as Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, dead in their sins and needing to confess and give up that way of life, trusting in Jesus alone and receiving that grace that one can have any hope beside the wrath and eternal judgment of God. Paul wants to have people growing in this hope, but the only people who can grow in this hope are those who have, first of all, cried out to God for mercy through His Son Jesus and been given not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. Been given a new birth. Been given a new creation. So, as Second Peter says, make your calling and election sure. And if today you are not sure of your place with God, then I beg you to cry out to God and to ask Him to have mercy on you and to save you by His grace and to apply the work of Jesus to your life. The great thing about God is that He is a God who hears and He answers prayer. He forgives and He pardons and this ever-increasing hope can be yours too if you have never trusted Him before. So that's the first point. Growing and knowing your hope is the first point in, in having enlightened eyes. Let's go on. Second point. Knowing the value of His inheritance in us. Look at the last part of verse 18 if you would please. It says that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul says this, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you see what it says there at the end? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Take a look back a few verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, if you would please. Then you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So, in verses 13 and 14, it indicates that we have an inheritance and the mark that the inheritance is coming is the Holy Spirit living in you or that is the promise, that is the down payment in your life. Your inheritance. Hmm. 
So when we are included in Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit as a down payment or deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We have an inheritance with God. We are heirs of the king of the universe. But look at the last part of verse 14. Until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So we're starting to change the focus away from our inheritance to something that God owns. Our inheritance. Let's go back to verse number 18. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Who has the inheritance this time? There is some theological debate with uh, subjective and objective genitives. We're not going to worry about that stuff. Okay, I think that most of the guys who are writing on this are wrong because of what it says in most of the translations. Who has the inheritance this time in the passage? The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Don't be afraid. God! God has the inheritance here. God has the inheritance here. What the Apostle Paul wants the church in Ephesus to realize and to have as part of the gift of enlightened eyes is a growing knowledge of the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, the church of Jesus Christ, for reasons known only to God in his triunity, to the creator God of the universe, is a valuable inheritance of our God. Let that sink in for a moment. The church of Jesus Christ is a glorious inheritance of God. How does that work? I have no idea. But that's what the passage says. The church of which you are an elect and blood-bought member, despite the fact that we are all by nature sinful, defiled creatures without Christ, is highly valuable to God. From all eternity, God has chosen a people to be the bride of his dear son. And he has endued it with a clear record and a new birth when they trust in Jesus Christ so that he could glorify his name across the universe. In chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, the Apostle Paul says this, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you which are your glory." Verse 10 again says this. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church is God's 
inheritance that he loves so much because he so highly values the proclamation of his glory, the things which we find so hard to grasp out of the Christmas story, he loves to proclaim. He loves to proclaim that. And he proclaims it to the principalities of heaven and the people of the earth. And Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7 says this, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us, in Jesus Christ. The church is saved. The church is put together so that God can place you beside Christ and say, look at how glorious I am in the grace that I have given to these people who have hated me. And I have saved them. They were against me from Eve on. And I've changed their hearts. The penalty they deserved was going to hell. And instead, Jesus took that penalty upon himself. They had no righteousness of their own, but instead, Jesus' righteousness covers each and every single one of them. He did it in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? Do you see it here? Somehow the salvation of the individuals and of the body of the church of all the ages is of surpassing value to Yahweh. For he loves to glorify his name and he can do it best, put this through your mind, he can do it best through us. He can do it best through us. He wants to show his incomparable riches and he best does that by showing his amazing gracious kindness to us in Christ. Do you see why Paul wants this to be part of the gift of enlightened eyes? We are on a valuable mission. We proclaim singularly as a local and universal church the greatest thing that we could ever proclaim. It's the most Important thing to God. It's his surpassing glory. We are on a valuable mission. We proclaim singularly and as a local and universal church the greatest thing we can. It's the most valuable thing to God. His surpassing glory. As we comprehend and see more clearly this idea that we are God's valuable inheritance. It gives us ability to joyfully go on with him and go on for him. So now we see that Paul in his prayer for us, for the gift of enlightened eyes, has prayed for us to have a growing knowledge of the hope for which we are called, or knowing the hope, in the first part of verse 18, and the growing knowledge of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, or knowing the value of his inheritance in us. We come to the third point now. This is the final point, I promise. Growing knowledge of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, or knowing the power of God. Let's look at the last part of the passage. This is starting at verse 19. 
and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. The third gift is seen in verse 19. And His incomparably great power for us who believe. The greatest struggle the church has faced, whether it would be at the first century, the 15th century, or yesterday afternoon or tomorrow morning, is the struggle to impact the world while we carry our hope, growing and knowing in our knowledge of our value to Yahweh, but banging up against the walls and roadblocks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I want to serve. I want to move forward. I want to bring in the kingdom as best I can as God uses me. But as Spurgeon says, whenever you sharpen the plow to go out to plow the field, Satan comes along and dulls the plow. There is something in the way. How in the world do you feel that I am able to live and be a witness that God through Christ called me to be when every heart, it seems, is turned against God and the devil will do his level best to defeat every effort on our part to serve God faithfully? The Lord even said, in this world you'll have tribulation, pressing times, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The Apostle Paul went further and said to Timothy in a letter to him, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In contrast to this, though, hear what Pastor Smith had to say about this last gift from the last part of our passage. Here in Christ we have resurrection power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. You saw that in verses 19 through 21. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the one to come. The same power that took the dead and door, that is a doornail body of Jesus Christ Jesus of Nazareth, and not only brought him back to life from the dead, but raised him to the pinnacle of celestial authority. And universal authority is the one that we exercise whenever we call an individual from their dead life to serve the living God. Whenever you proclaim the good news of the gospel to somebody who's never heard of Christ, you are bringing to bear as God works the power to raise the dead. The call that goes out, the recreative power that took Christ from the tomb, applied to the lives of those to whom we speak as they are effectually called by the Spirit of God to faith in Jesus Christ is doing a work if the Lord wills a resurrection just like Jesus rising from the dead. That's amazing. More than that, Pastor Smith goes on, but after the resurrection power, there's a supreme authority as well. There's no higher authority than Jesus. 
Remember when Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Because of that authority, despite the laws of government or the roadblocks of anyone else, we are empowered to go and be God's valuable inheritance wherever he calls us to go, anywhere. Being killed and being tortured cannot stop us. Zoning bylaws about the size of your home group cannot stop us if we obey them appropriately and disobey appropriately. Being shouted down will never drown us out, for we have all authority in the carrying out of the task that our God has given to us. (laughs) What comfort the last section of this passage is to us. As we think of all, when we think of this, we have an all sights pass to go to that great concert in the sky We can do whatever the Lord calls us to do because we have the power and we have the authority to do what he calls us to do and people's lives will be changed and we'll be able to go and have influence where nobody ever, ever, ever expected. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This growing understanding and intimate knowledge of God's power for us, the church, will give us the fortitude, the courage, and the impetus to move on. So we have this prayer by Paul answered in our lives. And if it is answered, we will have these things, a growing knowledge of the hope to which we are called, or if you want to have a little phrase, knowing our hope. A growing knowledge of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, or knowing the value of his inheritance in us. And the third one, a growing knowledge of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, or knowing the power of God. To a lesser and lesser extent as we grow in Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we will not have trouble understanding what it is that we are being told in his word It'll no longer be like my friend Craig's thesis, but it will be the life and the light of our souls. As we begin 2017, the words of Hudson Taylor should be ringing in our ears. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Now that we realize that we need to cry out more and more for the gift of enlightened eyes for ourselves and each other, it makes the desire of our heart to grow in grace and to step out into the world for him more possible. Growing wiser and more knowledgeable about the things of God, I can serve Christ more faithfully by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send us this gift of enlightened eyes at the very center of our being that you would more and more because of the work of your spirit help us in these ways we want to be fully understanding who you are and what you're doing and how we can praise god for what is taking place father i pray that you would give us in the year 2017 a real understanding of our mission and the ability to move forward because you've opened our eyes 
and you keep on opening them so we can understand what you are saying and what you are doing. Guide us in Jesus' name. Amen.